Hey everybody, uh, sorry I've been a little sparse recently, and yes, I promise I will be getting to the finale of the Book of Concord here with the Formula of Concord very soon. But in the meantime, while I'm super busy and everything, I wanted to share with you uh, something of an exegetical principle of mine uh, when it comes to Greek. Uh, these days, whenever a Christian tells you they know the Greek, or they get into the Greek, and they, they make little self-deprecatory statements like, oh, it's all Greek to me, <laughs> that person is in danger. They're in danger of a kind of arrogance there because they want to use their knowledge of the Greek, oftentimes, to make you believe whatever they want. And there are a whole lot of countless uh, incidents where people that are heretics, formal heretics, decide to use their knowledge of the Greek and then mangle it and manipulate it so often just to get you to believe what they want or to let them get away with what they're doing. A good example of this would be uh, in times where marriage comes up and Christian feminists start reading up about, well, the husband is the head of the wife. And they, they read about that and they go, well, I don't want that to be the case. I hate headship. Oh, darn it. Well, let me just look this up in the Greek. And then they find one or two sources from some feminist theologian who says, well, by head it means source, not Head as in authority over. That's just silly. <laughs> so don't you worry, ladies. You don't have to obey your husbands or submit to them. Ah, and problem solved. Now she can uh, be terrible to her husband and never submit to him. That's a common thing that happens all over the place. And so people like Wayne Grudem went through every single extant uh, instance of that word, head, in the Greek being used in every context around it, and they found that, um, I think it was like something 2100 instances of the word in Greek, which is translated head in scripture, uh, 2100 of them referred to head as in authority over, and two referred to the, that word as source. But it didn't matter. The damage was already done, and article after article after website after web blog is used so that anybody who is in error can say, I read the Greek. <laughs> Therefore, I don't have to do what the Bible says. That's all over the place. There's a whole bunch of people out there who take this almost Gnostic route in reading Holy Scripture in such a sense that they believe they have the secret knowledge of what the Bible really means, man. Because they read the Greek or they read the Hebrew. You don't see that as often because Hebrew is a, an extremely difficult language. Take it from me. <laughs> but when it does come to the actual Greek, every now and then it is true that as you and I are studying Holy Scripture, we are going to be confronted with something that we don't understand. We just don't get it. We have no clue what Jesus is saying here, or it, it could kind of go either way, right? What do we mean by all of these things? And I'm going to show you a, 
a few quick and dirty principles for exegesis that help us to, at the very least, not go astray when we start doing this. So we're going to go to Matthew chapter 18, and we are going to go over two verses here. Matthew chapter 18, verse 5 and verse 6. Before we get into the Greek, let's go ahead and read these verses. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So this is what our Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18. You know, this is in a context where the, uh, the apostles basically ask him, like, hey, who's, who's top dog in the kingdom of heaven? And he calls a kid over to himself, but puts the kid on his lap and says, all right, be like this. There, you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Humble yourself or lower yourself to be like a child. Be totally reliant on me and upon God the Father. And then, yes, you will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But the question is, going off of verse 5 here, when he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, off of the ESV here, is Jesus saying, when you receive children in the name of Jesus, you are receiving Jesus? Or is Jesus saying, when you receive children, a Christian, you receive Jesus. That it, the verse in English could go either way. It's kind of hard for us to parse this out. So I'm going to tell you right now, for people who have never learned Greek and everything like that, there is a website called BibleHub.com that is absolutely fantastic as a resource to kind of get into the nitty gritty here. But before we even do, before we turn to BibleHub.com to go on to what's called the interlinear of this verse, we have to ask some quick questions about the context. Jesus is holding a kid, or he's, he's got a kid standing right in front of him. But then he says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest of the kingdom in heaven. So verse 2 here we see an immediate context of a kid is right in front of him. Verse 4, however, is saying, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So now we have to wrestle with the actual context. And we have to ask ourselves, does an interpretation of this make sense in light of Scripture? Before I even get into the Greek, before I even get into what the actual words are that the apostles wrote and what they mean, before I get into the interlinear, I have to ask myself, if one of these possible interpretations could violate scripture, that one is wrong. Because you, you do not introduce contradictions into holy scripture. There are no contradictions in it. So if your interpretation causes a contradiction in the Bible, it's wrong. 
So we can already kind of start seeing where Jesus is going with this. Because whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Okay, so he's telling a whole bunch of people, if you receive one of these children, you receive me. But you got to do it in my name. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Okay, so we're already starting to negate the idea of this being be nice to children. Although you should, there's other parts of the Bible that tell you, yes, you should love your children and uh, be nice to the kids you see out there on the street. Absolutely. But if you receive a child in Jesus' name, if you do that good work, any kid out there, if you're just nice and say, hey, you know what, in the name of Jesus, let me give you a snack, Bobby. Does that, is that equivalent to receiving your Lord Jesus Christ into your heart? No. Because everywhere else, the scriptures proclaim that you are not saved by your works. Jesus is not saying here, or at least it's already excruciatingly suspect for him to be saying that if you receive a kid normally, and if you're just nice to a little boy or little girl out there that you meet, or one of your own children, that suddenly that means that you have welcomed Jesus in your heart. So now that we've done a little bit of critical thinking here, we recognize the issue. He could be either talking about children in general, or he could be talking about the children of God, those who humble themselves like children and rely on God. Well, let's now get into the Greek. So if you go into BibleHub.com, you can go to the interlinears, type in and click on Matthew 18, verse 5. And here you're going to see a bunch of lines. Each uh, verse and each thing has like a line of numbers, a line of um, Latin alphabet letters, then a bunch of Greek words, and then an English approximation of the word order. So if we go to verse 5, then it's, it's not going to make much sense if we read it in the English. But it says, And whoever, if shall receive one little child, such in the name of me, me receives. Obviously, the English translators put it in a grammatical order that English speakers would understand. But not even touching the grammar here. Greek grammar is extremely difficult. But what we can do is we can say, okay, well, if Jesus is talking about receiving, what do we mean by that? We see that word there, decatai. It'll look like dexatai in um, the English letter versions of the Greek but it's decatai. And you look at it, okay, so it says 1209 there. Click on that number, and you'll be able to see, okay, decomai, that's the verb it comes from, decomai, to receive. Let's study what this word says. Decomai, properly to receive in a welcoming, receptive way. It is used of people welcoming God or his offers like receiving and sharing in his salvation. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13 and thoughts. Ephesians 6 verse 17. Decomai, 
in 1209, warming, warmly receptive or welcoming, means receive with ready reception what is offered. Welcome with appropriate reception. So, okay. Since Jesus uses the same verb, and we can see that in the interlinear here, he's using the same exact uh, Strong's number 1209 here for receiving. Deketai, deketai. Receive, receive. You receive one of these little children, receiving me, he says. All right. And he says, okay, one little child, we can look, okay, 3813 for little child, that is um, just paideon. Paideon, that's little child. It's a, it's a neuter term, so male or female, just receiving a kid. But then it says, such. Toyuto. Um, with the little inflection mark, you'd pronounce it Toyuto. So that says 5108. And this is going to be our big clue here for what Jesus means to reinforce the context clues and the critical thinking we used by consulting the Greek here. So Strong's Greek 5108, toyutos, says it is a demonstrative pronoun, meaning such as this, such, or in the usage of such a kind. So um, the NASB translations here use it as like this, men like other, similar, so, such, such a fellow, such a kind, such a man, such a one, such a person, such as these, such men, such people, such persons, such things. Okay. So the way that this word seems to operate here, toyotas, is it's kind of a grouping pronoun. Everything in that's like this. Now, again, context here. So Jesus says, whoever receives one such child or a child like these in my name receives me. So, we ask ourselves then, in context, if Jesus is grouping together this concept of children and saying, if you receive them in my name, you receive, you welcome me, you give me a warm welcome, he is saying that that belongs to this sort of child, this, this kind of person here. And that doesn't apply to all kids. Because, it says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We saw that in verse 4. And if somebody receives he who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven, or the greatest type of person in heaven, um, in the kingdom of heaven, those who truly, like children, are humble, and like children, then, are going to be lowly and reliant, dependent upon the higher power, our Lord, that means that's he's going to put his name behind that. He's going to put his advocacy there. So, I think that just about settles it regarding the immediate context of the verses and 
the, uh, the actual Greek transliteration of everything, that this means Jesus is saying, whoever receives one such Christian, a Christian with childlike faith and dependence on me, in my name, or for his sake, they receive me. That's good. That means so much more than we've all we've already looked at it. This means that a Christian, who like the word Christ is in Christian, you have that name Christian with Christ right there. Somebody who receives you who truly depend upon Jesus. That person who receives you warmly with welcoming, understanding what you're about. They're in the presence of Christ who is there. He's there with you. And they're receiving him too. There's a blessing there. Now in contrast, the very next verse here is also something that is difficult to translate. Or difficult at least to interpret. Like already here I know that I've kind of muddied the waters saying, okay... It could go either this way or that way, but the most likely candidate is that Jesus is talking about faithful Christians. Whoever receives a faithful Christian in the name of Christ receives Christ. They are going to be a believer, most likely. But, verse 6 says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Well, okay. You might be asking then, uh, why, Mr. Very Lutheran Project, is that hard? Well, now we have to ask, verse 6. We just determined, verse 5 is about Christians receiving those who truly depend on Jesus. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. We already see, with who believe in me to sin... We know the question is going to be, is this referring to Christian children, or is this referring to Christians? Ah, now we have another issue with interpretation here. Because we keep hearing about millstone nationalism, and we all understand this is what pedophiles deserve. They deserve to be tied up to a millstone and thrown into the ocean. We, we can all say that, right? But Jesus says, one of these little ones who believe in me. So all that further reinforces verse 5 here, the who believe in me, that verse 5 is probably referring to Christians. We do got to ask about the but. <laughs> but whoever causes one of these, these little ones to believe in me, hmm, does that mean Jesus is setting up a contrast regarding the child? Is he anathematizing people who harm Christian children? Or is he making it more broad? Anathematizing those who would uh, tempt anybody. Anybody that's a Christian. Anybody who believes in him. If you tempt another Christian to sin, you're anathematized. It would be better for you to be drowned. Now we have to get into the weeds a bit. Because there are consequences to each interpretation of every single verse. 
So again, let's go through the same process we did in verse 5. We're presented with two options here. Jesus says, little ones who believe in me. Does that mean Christian children? Or does that mean all Christians? If it means Christian children, only Christian children, then we can understand, okay, if somebody causes a Christian child to sin, then, all right, they're going to hell, and it would be better for them to be drowned. They better hope for that. My question is, though, does that mean automatically that children are accountable for their sins? Because Jesus is saying you can cause one of these little ones if to sin. That means a child can sin. We all know that because we all know the kid that maybe bullied us in a, like elementary school or something like that. That jerk that took your lunch money or called you mean names and pushed you down. But this includes little, little, little kids. Because in verse 6 here, it means, it, the word he used, the Greek one is um, micron, micron, micro, super small. <laughs> We're saying little toddlers can sin. Now, if you're a Baptist, suddenly now you're going to have to question that whole age of accountability thing. Because there is an, something of a sense that kids, they can't be held accountable for sin, so it might as well be that they don't sin. But if the stakes are so high regarding that kid's fate, that Jesus anathematizes them, saying it's going to be worse for you than being drowned in the sea. Well, by golly, you got to question that whole age of accountability thing. Whoever causes one of these little ones to sin may be sealing that kid's fate for all eternity. If we interpret that as meaning all Christian children, just the kids. Now, if you're at, I hope this isn't confusing for people. This is real time exegesis here. But verse 5 says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. We did the work to determine, okay, that Jesus is probably just referring to children of God. Those who are in the kingdom of heaven by trusting in Jesus. Being humbled like children. But he starts verse 6 with a conjunction. Um, that, that is the word. But there is a contrast there, meaning there is room now. There's a little bit of leg room for him to specify any one of these kids as a Christian child or as a child of God, like verse 5. Are we looking at continuity between verses 5 and 6, or are we looking at the actual verse itself? You'll notice that I haven't consulted commentaries yet. We'll get to that step. If you're going to be doing any sort of sermon work for seminary students listening to this, it's it's good to do commentary work and everything, but that should be your last step as a check against what you've found out by your study. So let's look at the other alternative. Because if we say that these are Christian children who are caused to sin, this means that those kids, well, it, they can sin, and they'll be held accountable for it. 
hence the dire circumstances attributed to those who caused them to sin. But if we look at the other way of looking at it, that this means all Christians, well, gulp. Everybody who tempts another person that is a Christian is under this ban. They are under this frightful thing where Jesus says to you, you who have tempted any Christian to sin, it would be better for you to have a millstone fastened about your neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So this second route of looking at it, continuity between verses 5 and 6 regarding the subject of Christ's statements. That's scary. That is an extremely hard statement. Because I don't know about you. I've tempted people to sin in the past. I've been that bad guy before. Before and after being a Christian. Oops. Should I go look for a millstone? So now we're looking at it as like, okay. Darn. <laughs> what am I going to do here? How do we interpret this? Well, first off, let's look at the context. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. And again, I've been going back and back and back to the verses. you got to read these verses over and over and over and over and over again to get the sense of them, right? But if we go back to the, con the context once more, whoever, so anyone, anyone at all, who causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Jesus is saying something worse happens to you than drowning. But he says that about little ones who believe in me. Does that, does that include other little ones who believe in him? Going to the second interpretation here, if this is all Christians who trust in Christ for their salvation, then it would make sense for him, by context, to be excluding the other little ones who believe in him. Is he going to damn a little one who trusts in him for screwing up and tempting another little one to sin. And that makes us ask, what's the whoever there? Well, the whoever is just hos in the Greek, 3739, if you have Bible Hub open. Who, which, what, that. Ooh, that. That. Ah. It could be. He, that, tempts them. Anyone in this, uh, in this milieu here of people who deserve worse than a millstone drowning, that might by its nature exclude one of the little ones. So that's a point for interpretation number two of continuity between verses five and six. However, Whoever causes one of these little ones to who believe in me to sin, if that is just Christian children, 
Then the, the, the idea of a contrast between verses rather than continuity. Either one could be the case. If it's not the second one, where Jesus is saying, if you're not one of these little ones who believe in me, if you are an outsider contrasted with somebody who receives one of these believers, then millstone time. If we're not looking at it that way, if we're looking at the contrast here of, yes, if you receive a child of God in my name, you receive me. But when it comes to the kids themselves, the actual little, little, little kids, uh, you can cause them to sin, and then we're looking at anathema town. That first one is even harder than the second interpretation, just looking at the consequences of what that interpretation means. Now we get into the Greek. So we go over to Bible Hub here, Matthew 18, verse 6. What is the word for cause to stumble? Because again, in the, the actual word order here in the Greek, it's and who, um, whoever then shall cause to stumble one of the little ones of these believing in me, it is better for him that should be hung a millstone heavy around the neck of him and he be sunk in the depth of the sea. The, the word order in the Greek because of how their grammar works is different. But causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin the word causes and to sin all the way on the other half of the verse that's one verb scandalise strong's number four six two four so in determining here we've we've looked at the context and said okay it could kind of go either way with what jesus is referring to here but then we look at the greek to specify here Scandalizo, Strong's number 4624, means to put a snare, to cause to stumble, or to give offense. Now that's according to the, um, the, the helps word studies in Strong's concordance. If you want to tangle with them and say that, he, that they got it wrong, okay. But, typically here, there is offense here and a snare so there is the enticement to sin but there's also the enticement to sin by offense now when we get to a greek word in scripture oftentimes if it is hard to determine what it means which one it's referring to i would say take the broadest interpretation if we're asking, okay, we look at here at Bible Hub, we've clicked on the, the little number there, 4624, and we go, okay, so is Jesus saying whoever puts a snare in the way of these little ones who believe in him? Or is he saying whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in him to stumble or sin? Or is he saying whoever gives offense or shocks and offends one of these little ones deserves the millstone treatment, but worse? Since Jesus did not specify, Jesus, it is safe to say, probably means all of them. If we don't know which one it is, we can rule one out if it doesn't, if it doesn't click with the rest of the verse. But otherwise, it is absolutely wisest to say 
the broadest understanding of the phrase is best. Why do I say that? Well, I'm advocating for a broad use of the term in order to prevent eisegesis. Since I'm not a super duper expert in the Bible that can read Jesus's mind, I'm not a psychic here. And if I read Christ's mind, I'd probably die because he's God. Just head would explode here, right? But I don't know which one of those he's referring to. So a lot of times in the Bible when it condemns fornication, it uses the word pornea. And so people will try to say, oh, that just means fornication is in uh, PIV, sex before marriage. Therefore, <laughs> therefore, I can go get my rocks off at a happy ending massage place. And that's not the case. Because pornea applies so many different texts in Greek literature to so many different situations that the Apostle Paul, when he condemns pornea or fornication or any sort of sexual immorality, sexual immorality is a better translation of it, just on account of the fact that, well, the marriage bed is sanctified in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, and nothing else. And, and the word is used of so many other illicit contexts in, uh, not only in scripture, but in other places in Greek literature, that it you would have to want it to mean something, well, easier on the sinful man than before. Um, just double checking myself real quick. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4. Yep. The marriage bed be undefiled. Let the marriage, let the marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. All right. But moving along from that, again, when, whenever it's real-time exegesis here where your mind is going to be bouncing around everywhere. Or maybe you're better at focusing than me. But back to scandalizo. Scandalizo, or where we get the idea of scandalizing someone. If we try to say it's one of these. To tempt somebody. Or to cause them to stumble. Or to put a snare there or to offend them, if I just pick one of these and says, yes, that is what Jesus meant when that word was selected, or whatever Aramaic cognate to it, then I have just put my thoughts, my decision, my words into Christ's mouth. Heaven forbid. If it has all of these meanings, if any of them would contradict the sense of the text, sure, I can just put that one on the back burner and take all the others and understand it to be broadly in that spectrum of meaning. So when Jesus says, whoever would, um, <clears throat> the precise word being here, scandalise, so whoever would scandalise one of these children, he is saying to put a snare, to cause them to sin, to cause them to stumble, and to give offense or to offend them, shock them, bring them to indignation. All of those are going to apply because none of them violates the context of the immediate verses. Again, this is just, it's not always going to work out. I do want you guys to be careful if you're going to try some at-home exegesis. <laughs> I do want you to be careful 
and ask if this uh, Lutheran rule, this very Lutheran rule applies. But generally speaking, it is a way to shield yourself from eisegesis, from accidentally inserting your opinion into the text. So if Jesus is saying, whoever would put a snare in, in, a, in the child's way deserves the millstone treatment plus, whoever would cause one of these little ones to stumble, meaning to fall in the faith, probably to fall in the faith, they deserve the millstone treatment plus, whoever would offend or scandalize one of these little ones who believes in him, they get the millstone treatment plus. That is all applicable to the text at large in the immediate context of the verse. When you think about this uh, rationally, if I do one, have I done the other? When it comes to all the word meanings here, scandalizo, I scandalize. If I tempt somebody to sin, have I offended them? Have I given an offense against them? Absolutely, I have caused them to displease God. If I cause somebody to stumble in their faith, well, have I, by definition, caused them to sin? Yes. Because doubting, strictly speaking, while doubting itself isn't a sin, but the results of doubting so often is sin, I have tempted them. And if I offend somebody, have I tempted them to sin? Absolutely. By doing something bad, this is offend not as in saying something that offends their sensibilities so much as um, to cause their indignation, to do something bad to them, slapping somebody upside the head when they didn't, when that didn't need to happen. Have I tempted them to sin? Yes. If I punch my kid who's five years old, if I punch him right in the mouth, I have scandalized him per the Greek, because I have tempted that child to sin against God. He might repeat my behavior, thinking now that's acceptable. If dad does it, I can do it. He might start going, oh man, I can't rely on my dad anymore for safety or provision. I need to rely on myself, and that could hurt his faith down the line. He could decide, all right, I'm going to hit you back, Dad. I'm going to get vengeance. And God says, don't take vengeance. Oh, I've scandalized my son in more way than one just by causing offense and sinning against him. So the first understanding of this, remember, all the way back to the initial question. When Jesus says, one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, is he shifting the emphasis to Christian children or is he maintaining the same understanding that this is all Christians who believe in him being his children. The first one is a lot harder. It's a harder verse on account of that first interpretation. Because all of us as Christians sin against people. We know this from all sorts of other places in scripture. It's just unavoidable. Romans chapter 7 and elsewhere, we have an old Adam that every now and then will get the best of us, and we do sin. We pray daily for the forgiveness of our sins. We beg for the forgiveness of our sins. 
And if Jesus is anathematizing you because you offended a kid who is a Christian, everybody's damned. So, <laughs> the more accurate understanding then, or at least the more theologically sound, is that when Jesus says, whoever, he's referring to people that are not one of the little ones who believe in me to sin. You know, whoever is outside of the little children who believes in him. And the little ones who believe in him are probably a reference to kids. Not, not just normal kids, but God's kids. Members of the kingdom of heaven. That maintains the continuity between verses. It does not introduce a novel way for everybody in the world to be damned. And it maintains the sense of the text that Jesus in context here. This is an answering a question of who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. People who are like children in their relationship to God. All right. That said... Typically, this verse is interpreted by the average layman to say, don't hurt kids. Does this mean, does my interpretation of it, my understanding of it, having looked at the, the Greek words, having applied what, what you might call the very Lutheran rule or whatever you want to call it, the broad understanding of verses, uh, especially verbs. Does that mean that we can now just go about mistreating kids? Absolutely not. Because... In this sense, you and, we have to think about this. If you hurt somebody, if you offend somebody, if you sin against somebody, are you tempting them? Yes. Is that a sin to tempt someone? Yes. And in the fourth commandment, the, when it comes to kids, right, your own children... You know, honor your father and your mother that it may go well with you in the land you are going in to possess. The fourth commandment, you tempt your children to violate that when you are a bad parent. That's a sin. <laughs> so we are absolutely still under a rule where we treat children well. After all, after all, they are vulnerable neighbors and you are to love your neighbor as yourself. But when it comes to the actual interpretation of this verse while that doesn't exclude treating little kids well and being a good person to them and everything it is better to see it as more broadly applying to all christians and condemning those who are outside of the church who scandalize us now that's good because that means jesus has our back against the forces of the world the flesh and the devil who all want us to sin, and he will rightfully punish them. However, this doesn't exclude, yes, treat children well, and I imagine for somebody who decides to uh, harm a kid, it's even worse than what is worse than drowning by millstone. Anyway, I've been going on for about 43 minutes. I do apologize that this has been a um, almost super scatterbrained stream of consciousness exegesis session here spending 43 minutes on two verses but that is the kind of work that you need to put in if you're gonna get it right james 3 1 says there's a harsher judgment for teachers so in all things may we be careful 
and may we pray for mercy in case we get it wrong. Amen and amen.